Blog Talk Radio. Download on iTunes after the fact as an archive show. Thank you for uh, seeking us out and having listened to the program. And you can search any of the topics of past shows, uh, of which there's a very wide range, on blogtalkradio.com forward slash the mind whisperer. And you can find the same link uh, on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com the mind whisperer. Uh, I encourage you to join the Facebook page and to uh, let me. Um, keep track of who you are and where you are and um, to be in touch with you. Um, can't do that directly from Blog Talk Radio at this point. Um, so I'd like to know you know, um, who you are and what you're interested in in the program. Of course, you can call in any time if you're listening live or uh, participate in the chat forum online. Well, as I said, you're listening to The Mind Whisperer. I'm your host, Michael Gordon. Today's uh, program title is actually a slogan that I use for my business as a clinical uh, counselor, psychotherapist. And that phrase, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, is something that comes from uh, the Zen Buddhist uh, tradition. And I've always found this to be a very potent uh, saying, and it seems to resonate with a lot of people. And it does reflect the sort of Buddhist perspective on life. That is, um, we can't avoid pain, but suffering is something that we engage in uh, on a meaning level that can become layered uh, with our personal narrative and how we internalize our experiences. So what do I mean by all that? It sounds quite, quite loaded. Um, let me explain from a physiological point of view first. So our body is geared to warn us of danger threat, and that could be something external that we perceive in our environment or potential threat. Uh, and it can also be something that's happening within our body infection, injury, inflammation, etc. Your body gets a message, uh, sends a message through various um, uh, means in your immune system and nervous system, and your brain responds on a sort of subroutine level that there's a problem. Now, by the time you consciously know about pain, uh, it's because the pain signal is amplifying so much to get your attention. 
it's, it's almost like it's, you know, tapping you on the leg and saying, literally, you know, hey, there's a problem here. Now, as I say to my clients, uh, in our normal physiological and psychobiological development, that is how we function as a uh, mind-body organism, um, there's a, uh, a normalizing kind of regulatory response to these stimuli in the body. In other words, as you develop with you know a normal development in through your childhood and et cetera, and your, and your brain wires itself with the appropriate filtering of information, which is about 70 bits of information a second, even though your brain is capable of processing 11 million bits of information per second. Imagine if all of that came flooding in. So it's being stopped down by a very narrow pipe so that you're not constantly in shock. So there's all kinds of things that are happening in the body that are regulated by, say, endorphins, all kinds of aches and pains, etc. Um, otherwise, you would feel enormous pain all the time. Now, this is very interesting because uh, when you look at withdrawal symptoms, for example, from... Uh, opiates like heroin, narcotics, which are replacing the body's natural painkiller, which are endorphins. So now your body is no longer producing naturally a stable rate of um, endorphins at the receptor sites in the brain. Uh, when you withdraw cold turkey from that drug without methadone, for example, then your body is suddenly experiencing a uh, deprivation of and, and a uh, a non-production of those endorphins. And that's why you hear stories of people, or if you've maybe experienced yourself, any kind of withdrawal, you feel in intense uh, physiological pain uh, because your body's not sort of just soothing and taking care of all of those nerve-ending responses. And that's what, that's what manages the difference between a tickle and a poke. You know, if somebody tickles your skin and somebody pokes it with a sharp object, you know the difference because your body can sense the difference and your brain makes sense of it. Now, sometimes with chronic pain, for example, the um, or injury, the pain signal no longer relates to a medical injury. Now, this can be a little bit confusing, but I'll relate a story from a professional colleague. And I uh, do a, a therapeutic... Uh, approach um, called EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And what it essentially does is goes back and looks at unresolved incidents in our past that may be physical traumas or emotional traumas uh, that your body, again, kind of all of a sudden those floodgates um, of those 70 bits per second got opened up more towards that flooding in of 11 million bits of information a second and your body stays in that hypervigilant uh, state. And so EMDR can allow you to go back and get the brain to process and say that event is finished. And this is very interesting when it relates to something like chronic pain. And you might see where this is going. But it's an interesting fact that, um, again, pain is, is a signal in the body that something needs attention or something is happening. And after a certain point, that pain no longer becomes a, a, a medical condition per se. So if you go to TED.com and watch a TED Talk about um, a neuroanatomist, I think he is, or a neuropsychiatrist named uh, Ramachandran, he's Sri Lankan, 
And he talks about this incredibly ingenious device and so simple that he set up to deal with phantom limb pain. And that's when somebody's had an amputation of a limb. In this case, he was talking about uh, an arm amputation below the elbow. But before the amputation, the injury uh, to the person was that their hand was crushed in an accident. So the, uh, it, the state of the mind and body prior to that operation were of excruciating pain in the hand and the closing up and the balling up of the fist and, and uh, the, the pain in the hand. And so um, the body has what he calls a learned response. And it's learned that that pain is, is there and still there despite the evidence that the arm has been amputated. And so realizing that phantom limb pain, which is still feeling the severed hand or arm, the pain response, even though it's actually not even there, um, he wondered if that could be reversed. And so he created this in a very ingenious, very simple device, which was basically a box with a mirror in it. And you stick your, you know, the patient takes their amputated limb, puts it inside the box, and the box is divided, and you, uh, they take their other intact uh, arm, forearm, and put it uh, also parallel to the box. And so the mirror, what they see in the mirror, which is next to their severed limb, is the reflection of the intact limb. So to their mind, it looks as if when they look over at the mirror, they're, they're, for example, their left arm is still there. And so this creates a rewiring in the brain. It's neuroplasticity. The brain rewires and says, oh, it's actually happening. It's there. There's the evidence. And that can um, down-regulate that uh, stuck pain response that's associated with the injury. So there's a perfect example of how the brain can rewire itself and that the pain signal can be completely um, inappropriate or wrong, even though it's real and it's active and it's, I'm not suggesting it's made up, it's an, in a way a kind of psychosomatic disorder, meaning the mind is, is perpetuating the injury. So this is very fascinating research and, and, uh, and again, a very ingenious adaptation um, to create a device to help people with that kind of pain. Now, that's pretty clear when it comes to physical pain. And in a more benign way, for example, most of us know when we have a cramp in our side or, uh, you know, we bump our leg, we're not dying, okay? And for people who are, you know, quite hyper-aroused, in other words, their set point for anxiety is already very elevated and high, um, they might be channeling all their anxiety into that stimulus of, oh, I've got a stitch in my side or my stomach hurts, into what's called hypochondria. And that's in a... a, a a mental disorder where the person starts to become paranoid that every sensation in their body is related to some kind of medical condition. So again, most of us are able to normalize and regulate those things. I'm having a cramp, I've stubbed my toe, et cetera, et cetera. And you can actually, you know, when you see the uh, mind over matter, so to speak, um, in yogis or even the Aikido uh, training that I do in martial arts, um, mind over matter works because the brain can say that's not a big deal. If you're cold, you can actually regulate your body temperature. Um, I tell my students if they get a foot cramp, don't react. Relax your body, take your mind off of it, because the more you relax, the more you, pardon me, react, the more you amplify that signal between your foot and your brain saying, I'm cramping, your brain reacts and says, that hurts, and it, it just reinforces that circuit of, of the pain response. If you ignore it, 
your muscle will relax and you'll calm down. Now, you can see the relevance of this in terms of anxiety. If we have a thought, the thought has the same impact to us in terms of fear or just a stress response as a physical signal, a pain of a signal of physical pain in the body would. In other words, I have a thought, I'm a bad person, I don't deserve things, um, um, I'll never get what I want, um, I'm unlovable, all these things that we cope with day to day in our negative thinking based on past hurts and conditioning and our rational um, assessment of things that have happened and you know, it just comes from some sort of shaky self-worth at some point. But again, that can become very real to the body. So you can make an equation between the Ramachandran experience that I, or experiment that I related from TED uh, talks about the severed limb and the phantom pain, and you can look at abandonment or abandonment wounds or attachment wounds, as they're called, from early childhood as phantom limb pain, so that your mind and body are still carrying around the experience that you are a baby who is being left behind, not loved, ignored, neglected, or worse, abused. So similarly to that experiment, we can train the mind to have a different response, and that's certainly what's happening in the MDR therapy. You go back and you reprocess, you reframe the incident or, or the conditions that are still stuck for, for yourself. So. This is another kind of mind over matter thing. Of course, it has to occur in the specific way that those things are locked, uh, locked in the body, and that's where it becomes very tricky. So I have patients come to see me who have been to body workers, they've been through shiatsu, for example, or they've been through talk therapy, or they've been through uh, uh, pharmacology intervention, which means antidepressants, or all kinds of therapies that don't quite address because you never know how, how that hurt or that past injury has been internalized or metabolized into the body. But when we can identify things as being a negative emotion or a negative thought, it gives us something to work with. And we can challenge that thought and then again uh, down-regulate that learned response of shame, negativity, anxiety, depression, sadness, low self-esteem, and the self-destructive emotions that we carry. And meditation is not only something that um, belongs to contemplative traditions like Buddhist practice, and certainly that's what the Buddhist teachings prescribe as a very powerful antidote to these afflictive emotions and, and, and body experiences. But meditation is something that's being recognized by neuroscience now as um, an aspect of mindfulness, and that is attention or what's called meta-awareness in the body, overarching awareness, higher awareness, to look at this as simply being a process of mind and body. One example I give my patients is um, some great work that was done by... um, Barry Schwartz, I believe his name is, who wrote a book called um, Mind and Brain. And he worked at the Boston Hospital um, with an outpatient program uh, with obsessive compulsive disorder patients. And this is a very, uh, very, very difficult disorder because patients know they're being obsessive. They know they're locking the door 25 times. But the compulsion part of the disorder 
um, convinces them on a on a primal level that they have to do it. So it's it's a very disturbing disorder. However, what he did with mindfulness was get them to realize that there's an area of their brain that was misfiring. And when they found themselves going into a ritual behavior, walking the door, washing their hands, he got them to put their attention on, oh, that's that part of my brain that's misfiring. It's just a, a out-of-whack response. Much like you'd say, oh, that's just my sore knee. Okay. And, again, you regulate, normalize, get some perspective on it. You don't feel so closed in by it. And they it would get them to train themselves to shift their behavior. This isn't real. I don't need to do this. This is this part of my brain. It's part of the disorder. Do something else. It'll be okay. And as they start to get traction in, in shifting their behavior through that mindfulness, the frequency of those episodes decreased and decreased, decreased. And, of course, then all the symptoms decreased as well because you have anxiety about ongoing about you're going to have another OCD this uh, episode. Another piece that's very fascinating uh, as it relates to mindfulness, and I'll probably close the program with this uh, today, is um, something that was related by the Dalai Lama in a discussion with social scientists that was recorded in a book called Destructive Emotions, edited by Daniel Goleman, who was the author of of the groundbreaking book Emotional Intelligence. And in this dialogue that was uh, edited and put into this book, this symposium with these social scientists, the Dalai Lama was relating how Tibetan prisoners under the Chinese uh, were tortured. And those uh, prisoners who had had mind training, okay, so that's meditation, Buddhist practice, Buddhist teaching, the whole perspective and grounding in that non-attachment uh, practice, and perspective. Those who had that mind training and practice suffered less from the torture. Now, here's a, a very clear example of the of the relationship between pain and suffering. So, the pain of torture is horrifying, but the but the personalization of the pain. Why is this happening to me? My poor self. I can't endure this. You know, all the personalization. Um, compounds the effect of the torture. And you can now see from what I've described today the, the, the way that pain is experienced in the body, how much injury and how much pain response the body has, and certainly, more importantly, the traumatic after effects of having gone through that. And we can see that in um, you know, post-traumatic um, observation and, and uh, diagnosis and assessment of people who have been through horrific experiences like that, that the ones who were able to distance themselves a little bit or not attach so strongly to what happened and, again, attach meaning and their personal narrative to it, um, suffered less. Their symptoms were reduced quicker and were not as prominent to begin with. Intrusive memories, uh, you know, somatic, re- you know, re-experience of the event, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Classic PTSD symptoms. Another example given in the book is about um, a train disaster in Bangladesh. And a number of children were injured in this massive train derailment. And again, the children who had had some kind of uh, mindfulness education and contemplative practice, meditation, etc., 
um, were not as uh, disturbed after the event and recovered quicker. So this tells us that uh, the, the, the experience of injury, whether it's a physical injury or the psychological, emotional injury, is the same. And we also know from uh, empirical research that at the physiological, at the, genetic, at, the, at the cellular level, that damage occurs to the DNA and the cellular, at the cellular level of an organism when they experience stress, emotional stress, not just physical injury. And, of course, this is something that's been experimented with um, plants. And they've done uh, readings on plants, and they've actually done readings where they uh, got a potential difference in a, in a, in a measurement um, at a plant at rest and a plant when um, someone brought scissors to go and cut the plant, and essentially kill the plant. So this is, uh, shows us that not even non-sentient beings have a sense of perception or injury. But as sentient beings and as highly conscious beings, uh, being homo sapiens, we have the capacity with our consciousness to manage these experiences and we can't prevent painful things from happening. That's not the idea, is to live in the illusion that we will never have pain. We're all going to age Aging is a kind of sickness or disease. It's a breakdown of the body, and, and the body is a, is, has a life cycle. But certainly those who recognize that life cycle and um, are able to engage in life in the, at the highest level of appreciation and vitality and self-actualization um, live better lives. The quality of life is better rather than living in apprehension and fear and anxiety that what if I get sick, et cetera, et cetera. You're not living in the moment. We don't appreciate the moment for what it is as a gift, and we actually kind of hoard life uh, trying to have this sense of security that nothing bad will ever happen, and I'm kind of sandbagged myself against pain. This relates to a previous program I did uh, talking about vulnerability and how... Uh, paraphrasing the, the researcher um, and presenter, Brene Brown, who talks about how we, she talks about how we rehearse uh, trauma and, and pain as a way of trying to hold it off. But we actually rob ourselves of connection and, and um, vulnerability and the uh, joy of life. So we come back to the title. The title of today is Pain is Inevitable. Suffering is optional. And you can start to look at your own relationship to pain. You can look at, for example, how parents uh, treat their children. If a child runs into a uh, table leg or falls down on the pavement in the park or whatever, and they coddle their child and go over and, and suit them up and, and you know, soothe them and be overly attentive, then they're strengthening that neural pathway in the child's developing brain and sensitizing them to this thing, which is actually just a normal part of childhood. You're going to run, you're going to fall down. If it's something serious, we'll stop, give it attention, and uh, et cetera. But you're teaching, uh, uh, training their minds and their bodies to um, a pain response. And uh, healthy parenting is that which doesn't overcompensate. Okay, so stop, check, are you okay? Continue on. 
And you can see how that early patterning um, and how we internalize those messages uh, affects us in our, in our ability to um, cope with life. One of the key psychological traits that goes with that is what's called uh, resilience. The ability to bounce back and, and your strength to recover from events and take them in stride. And of course, the most uh, uh, perseverant people and the highly accomplished people are very strongly uh, defined by those positive traits. It's not what happened to them, it's that they kept going. They didn't let it stop them. And if you look at the biographies of highly successful people in any field of life, they never experienced uh, ease at the beginning of their journey. They experienced great struggles. The difference between them and the average person is they didn't allow that to stop them. They kept focused on their motivation and their goal. And they did not uh, perceive or um, overemphasize the events occurring as a meaning for them to stop or as being too much. And certainly in Aikido, for example, uh, we train progressively, uh, Aikido being the non-aggressive martial art that you redirect your opponent's energy and blend with, their, with the conflict. And students incrementally can handle more and more and more. We start off with hold, basic holds and we move up to being attacked with a, a, an edge weapon, a sharpened uh, Japanese sword. And the calmness of your mind minimizes the, the real threat of that attack because you are calm and can dis dissolve the attack um, very effectively. But our natural habit is to react, get very aggressive, and think we've got to stop this because it's so dangerous. And in fact, then it becomes more, much more of a dangerous attack to us because we've let them enter our mind, disturb our mind, and then uh, the physical attack becomes much more dangerous to us. Well, that's it for the program today. I uh, really enjoyed this topic today. This one just seemed to really flow, and um, it really is central uh, to the themes I've done on this program in the past, this intersection between mind and body, mind and brain, uh, perception, reality, all these uh, wonderful topics that help us function better and evolve, evolve our capacity for uh, um, calmness and certainly compassion and, um, and, and enjoy happiness in our lives. Well, thanks very much for listening today. I've been your host, Michael Gordon. You've been listening to The Mind Whisperer. Again, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash The Mind Whisperer. Drop me a line. Suggest the topic is for the future. I'd love to come to your town and visit and give a talk. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next time on the program. Until then, be well. <laughs>